Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 34. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. It's only a few months away before he faces the cross. Jesus has been preaching that everyone must repent and believe in order to be saved, that you must repent and believe in order to be saved. Over and over again, Jesus has been warning the masses, like in Luke 13, 24-25 and verse 28, where he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. And verse 28 says, And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves are thrown out. These are the kind of words that Jesus is, is preaching. But in spite of the message and the miracles that accompanied the message, it was just a matter of time until the nation of Israel would reject their Messiah, whom their own scriptures prophesied would come through him. And Jesus, knowing this soon rejection, wept over them in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, where he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your, wing, uh, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross, there's just more intensity. He is, he is speaking in, in drastic terms, throwing out illustrations of, of, yes, hellfire, brimstone, and repentance, and what the kingdom is like. He's trying to, with everything he has, he's painting prick, uh, pictures to, to the lost of how they could possibly enter the kingdom of God. And he's just focusing like a laser beam, and he's clarifying what salvation is, what discipleship is. So that those who desired to actually follow Christ would know where they stood. A lot of people desire to follow Jesus, but they will not enter. A lot of people say that they're disciples, but according to Jesus, they are not. And that's a scary day. And so that's where we are in, in, in verse 25 of chapter, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That was definitely a, a macroaggression there. He is saying that unless this happens, this cannot happen. And as we look at these verses, the key word that jumps out over and over, and also in verse 33, which we haven't got to yet, is disciple. That's the key word, disciple. You cannot be my disciple unless this happens. If you don't carry the cross, you cannot be my disciple. And then later on in verse 30, 33, he addresses it again. The word disciple means pupil. It means student. Religious leaders of the day, they traveled around and they had students or disciples who followed them, who mimicked them, and eventually became like them, learning from their teachings and, their, and the, what, how they did stuff. 
It's kind of what parenting is. And you wonder why they're little monsters. Good disciples. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and although Jesus was really never recognized by the religious establishment as an official teacher of Israel, many people, as you hear often, they called him rabbi over and over. His own disciples would call him that, and even people from the masses. And within those large groups of people following Christ, there were a whole range of people who desired to be disciples of Jesus, from the fully devoted follower of Jesus to the nominal followers to those who were just curiously seeking or, or seeking after a sign. There was a bunch of people, and I imagine in a room like this, there are similar circumstances going on. I remember in my own life being a, a nominal, uh, just a distant follower of Christ. And so Jesus turns to address the large crowds, and he says in that verse 26, if, if anyone wants to come to me, he's dressing the masses, if you want to follow me, and you do not hate your father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own lives, you cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, but this statement seems out of place at first glance, doesn't it? What in the world is he talking about there? Jesus makes this very stunning and exclusive statement to the crowds of people seeking to be his disciple. Unless you hate all these people, your family members, your, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Time and time again, Jesus makes these stunning qualifications. I don't even know what the word is. Over again, he just says, and they seem impossible to obey, don't they? He tells the rich man, you've got to give everything up. Sell everything and follow me. Talks to the person who wanted to have the family business. He says, you've got to let the dead bury the dead. You let them die and you follow me. It just seemed insensitive. It seemed harsh. It seemed just, what? Jesus, lighten up, you know? It's kind of how it seems. But if Jesus is speaking this in these terms, do you think he's trying to convey something that's very serious? Absolutely. And here Jesus says that in order to be his disciple, you must hate your family. Now, before we unpack this, we have to ask, who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the masses, to the crowds, of those seeking to be his disciples. It's very important to distinguish. Seeking to follow him, wanting to follow after him. These are unsaved people. And I believe that is what Jesus is driving home here. It's not directed towards his actual disciples. They are already his disciples. Yes, he would say things like uh, that to them. But to the masses, he's addressing a lost crowd. And he's putting parameters on, do you want to be my disciple? You want to follow me? Here's the gate. Here's the way in. And to receive salvation is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Somehow I think we, we've, we kind of maybe trained ourselves in modern Christianity, whatever it is, I know I have sometimes, that we can somehow have be saved and not follow Jesus. That is just so foreign to Jesus Christ. The two are linked. Salvation is the beginning of discipleship. Hopefully, a lot of you are going, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah. It's very important to know in Christ's teachings and 
mind, a person repents of their sin, abandons their rule over their own life, and follows him until death. That's what it is to be a Christian. You repent of your sin. You trust in Christ's sacrifice, and you follow him until you die or he takes you home or he comes gets you, whichever one comes first, right? That's discipleship in a nutshell. So although I think this morning we can look at this verse as Christ speaking to the nature of what should be displayed in a disciple, in our lives as disciples, I think we can take that. Hey, you know, I need to put priorities where they should be. I think Christ is speaking to the person desiring to follow after Christ to become saved in order that they might enter the kingdom. And he lays this impossible thing in front of them. And Jesus says, you must hate your family and yourself. What does that mean? That's very important. We don't want to stop here and say, amen, go home. We've got to unpack that, right? What is he saying? That seems contrary to the love of God. What's going on here? Hate, just to clarify, the word hate here is, is worse than you think it is. In Greek, it's not just a one-time hatred, it's a continual hatred. It's a, it's a hatred that's pursued, continually pursuing this hatred. Jesus is saying that this hate he's speaking of is continual. Now, the fortunate thing for us is he's using a Semitic or a Hebrew way of speaking. How can Jesus be saying to hate various family members when we know the Scriptures clearly teach us to honor our mother and father? Amen? Exodus 20.12. And husbands, love their wives. Ephesians 5.25. And wives, love your husbands. Titus 2.4. And parents, love their children. Ephesians 6.4. We know these commandments. In this context, hate is a figure of speech, a drastic way of expressing preference. Like in Malachi chapter 1, 2 through 3. Uh, also, Paul quotes it in Romans 9, 13, where he says, uh, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Did he really hate Esau? He said, I preferred one over the other. God gave preference to Jacob. Or similarly, in Genesis 29, verse 31, think about this, where it says that Leah, Rachel's, Rachel's sister, was unloved. That word in the Hebrew is actually hated. Now, we know that Jacob didn't hate Leah, but he loved Rachel more. And so Jesus is saying that in order to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, we must always have a greater place for Christ than all of all other relationships. They take a back seat. Even those closest bonds that we have, have uh, earthly bonds that we have in our, in our natural family. And it's somewhat difficult for us to understand the impact that had on that culture when Jesus is saying that I need to be more important than your family. I need to be more important than the most prized relationship you have in, in your life. And for them, it would have been honoring your mother and father and, and, and for a Jew in their history, they knew, like in Leviticus 29, that if someone cursed their parents, they would be put to death. And so honoring your mother and father was of great importance in the Jewish background. And so it should be with us. So it wasn't just, hey, mom and dad, I'm now following Jesus, support me. You didn't call the shots, your parents did. The father was responsible for 
putting the spiritual uh, teaching within the home, guiding that. You couldn't just buck against the system. You'd be ostracized. You'd lose your family. Now, today we go berserk. We should go back to stoning. No, I'm just kidding. That's not it. But to be an Israelite was to follow the law of Moses, and the Father did institute that in the home. And following Christ would cause division. It would cause a great division within the home. And this affected all the other relationships within the family. Gosh, husband, will you not just get along with him? You're causing all I got to be hang out with your mother, and this is not going well. And you can imagine the pressure, the social pressure that would happen. Just forget it. Let me just continue to have this duality of life. In other words, at home, I'll, I'll be Jewish, and then, and then I'll be a follower of Christ uh, when I follow Jesus. This duality. And Jesus says to the crowds full of people in these relationships, understand that cultural context, I will not be second. Jesus Christ will not be second to anyone. I must have even greater place in your life than your own father. If you can kind of convey the weight of that into your own relationships. And if you are unwilling to put me in that place, you cannot be my disciple. And this is what Christ demands of those who would be saved, that he would be Lord. He would become the ruler of your life. And if you are unwilling, then you cannot be his disciple. He made it very clear over and over again. And I think we have a a very wide Uh, presentation of the gospel. Don't you think? When Jesus actually paints a narrow path. Now, I know some of you are going, what are works and grace and all this type of stuff? We'll get there. That's not the point at the moment. But I believe there are people in that crowd that were wanting to follow Christ. They saw His power. They saw His glory, His grace. But they were unwilling to surrender all. They were unwilling to give Him the Lordship. They wanted to follow Christ and still have the relationships that they wanted to have. They wanted to follow Christ, yet appease their relatives and not rock the boat and be one way with them and one way at the church. I don't know. Jesus says, no, I must have greater priority than all of your earthly relationships. God doesn't want to come in and do a partial redo. I like what John MacArthur says about it. He says, Jesus is not interested in a makeover. He's interested in a takeover. Yeah, total takeover. He doesn't want you to hang on to 51% of your stock. You lay it all down. You're zeroed out. Where do you want me to be, Lord? Do I do, I do mail? Am I fired? What's going on? That's what, he, that's what he demands of you. It's a narrow path. There were those in the crowd who wanted to be called followers of Jesus, but when it came down to it, they valued their relationships with their family above following Christ. And Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple. I think it's important that we get this right when we do present the gospel. It's a total surrender. It is a total surrender. It's not a decision based upon emotion or a one-time prayer without the realization that it is a total surrender by faith. 
When you are giving your life to the Lord, you're not giving part of your life. It is a total, absolute, your old life is done. You've given everything to him by faith. You are now his. You've been bought with a price. The old life is dead. It's rather a realization that Jesus is saving me from my sin and is now that old life, the the life of self-rule is gone. Jesus is Lord now and forever. And, And if he says that relationship has to go, then guess what? It has to go. And if his word comes against something that an authority in your life says, guess what trumps, the, trumps all of that? His word. Whether it's your boss, whether it's kings, whether it's your wife, your kids, whatever it might be, he is now Lord. And therein is true life. To be a disciple is not only that you would uh, continually hate or be subject those relationships to Christ. And that's really the true context, not hating like throwing stuff at your family. That's not what we're talking about. It's preference. In other words, of course you love your family, but, you, but Jesus is all. Does that make sense? That's what he's getting at. And he uses drastic language to drive that home. I've got to be number one. The question is, is he number one? But it's also not only the relationships we have, but our own will and our own heart daily until we die. And that's what Jesus says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the question I have oftentimes is, well, how do I know that's going to happen? By faith. (laughs) But I think there is a recognition that Jesus has in the very beginning with people, a a realization he's bringing to their minds that this is not, this is not church membership. This is not something that we kind of do on Sunday. This is your life. This is it. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's not that he just rules over your relationships, he rules over you. He must rule over you. Unless I surrender my own self to his lordship, I cannot be his disciple. How many of you struggle with that day in, day out? Yeah. But coming to salvation, we need to know that it is, it's an all-surrender thing. And now, obviously, there's sanctification, which is where you're, you're learning how to do that. But there has to be that mindset that will that says, I am yours. He will be faithful to complete what he began in you. And this is why I believe Jesus is speaking about salvation in these verses, although they obviously apply to our walks with the Lord. And so as we place our faith in Christ and his finished work, we are at the same time surrendering our lives to his lordship and becoming disciples. That's what happens. You become a disciple when you give your heart to the Lord. He didn't save you, and then now you're in this extra category. Now you are a follower, a learner of Jesus Christ for the rest of your days. How many of you are just now realizing, whoa, Jesus, it's not just salvation. He's actually calling me to follow him every day. Yeah, that's what it's about. And Jesus actually 
you know, like I told you, he keeps telling stories. He's going to double down. He's going to give a couple illustrations here about how serious that is, that mindset that it's forever and I got to be all in. And I really think this is a picture of baptism, you know? It's where the life of sin and self is now over, and now the new life ruled by Jesus Christ is now happening. That's the life we're now living. And we must know that at the very beginning, or we cannot be as disciples, so to speak, total surrender is a condition of salvation. Turning from and turning to. And Jesus drives that home in the following illustrations, verses 28 through 33, starting in verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? How many of you uh, have started like a home renovation and you didn't do that? How many trips to Home Depot? I mean, just a lot of things going on there. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. How many people say, I want to follow Jesus, but they didn't count the cost? That is, it was for the rest of their days, and it was, he was Lord over all their relationships, and he was Lord over their very soul. They didn't know that going in. They weren't told that coming in. They didn't come to the realization of that coming in. And the, the seed went out and the, the hardships came and the root died. That all the other relationships were subject to Christ's rule. And we see that after a short time, how many have you seen just turn away from the Lord? They started building, but they didn't count the cost. She says, you can't be my disciple. You see, I think we, we make it really easy to, to come to the Lord, right? Just pray this prayer. Thank you so much. And, and I do not want to sit there and say we work at it. That's not it whatsoever. Because it is the Holy Spirit who actually brings you to the realization of your own sin. It's the Holy Spirit who, who convicts us of sin and, and who causes us to confess and who, who saves us and regenerates us and brings us to uh, fruition. But there's something happening within our will to where we must surrender. This beautiful tension we see in Scripture. Sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. But they did not count the cost. And Jesus looked at the masses and said, you better count the cost. I'm going to the cross. Are you following me? It's a continual, total surrender. Verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? This is what's going on right now with North Korea. People are strategizing and thinking and finding out what can happen. We just sent a third aircraft carrier over there. There's a lot of stuff. People are thinking, can I, can I take these people out? What's the collateral damage? They're thinking through these things. If he's not able to win, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. 
Here's the point. You can't outwar God. He's got more power than you. The day is coming when he will overtake you. The delegation needs to happen now before he decimates you. And he sent his son Jesus Christ as the peace offering to pay for any penalties he's done. And not only that, I was like a salesman here, but not only that, did he take away our sin? He makes us sons and daughters. We're not enemies in a far off land. He puts his covering up. What grace is that? How good is that? I love that. The point is, we're not going to win. Count the cost now. So in those two ways, don't start without realizing it's a total surrender and realize you're going to lose if you don't. (laughs) He's got us boxed in. And it's all for our benefit. Isn't that good? A person who does not give up everything you cannot be my disciple. What does everything mean in Greek? Anybody know that? It means everything. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> so Jesus is literally saying he wants you have to give up everything. Now, he's not talking about socialism. That's not what he's talking about. In other words, you just wrote over your life to God, and now he has the title deed to everything and now you are a steward of everything. You are a slave. A love and a son, by the way. Right? I don't want to forget that. So, guess what? When I have a paycheck come in, God gets 10%. Oh, wait a second. He owns 100%. And by the way, Lord, what do you want to have happen with this? Whoa, what's that lifestyle like? Does this please you, Lord? What would you, what would you want to do with all that I've brought in here by your grace? It's yours now. What do you want? How about our time? How about your car? How about your guitar? Whatever, health, energy, time. It, it's his. Everything. Relationships, they're all his. And it's all about how do you want this to work out, Lord? What's your plan? What's your kingdom look like? And then you find out as you follow him the glorious plan that he has for your life, which is all about his glory. And you find that you are designed to bring him glory. But it's not about your plan. It's not about your house, your home, your family. It's about him. Are you his? In the same way, if you do not give up everything you, can, you have, you cannot be my disciple. And so if you come to God holding on to anything as a ruler of it, don't even bother. You must become bankrupt. It must be His. And you are now the humble, unworthy steward of these possessions. And then verse 34 through 35 in closing. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is, it is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Now, it seems like this is disconnected. When I first read that, I was like, okay, well, how does that work out, God? 
But salt was a preservative, as you know, in those days. That was what its intent was. That's what it did. You know, you ever had read kind of like the 1800 books and they have salt pork, you know, and everybody lived to be 10. <laughs> but if salt loses... But if salt loses its purpose for being, it, doesn't, it, it can't be made salty again. You can't re-salt salt, I don't think. Right? According to Jesus, it's, just, it's not good. It wasn't good for fertilizer. It wasn't good for the manure pile. It wouldn't break down. And the other Gospels say it was only good to be thrown out in the road to be trampled under the feet of men. A disciple is to maintain saltiness. A disciple is to maintain discipleness. That means all in, all for him, all the time. Now we know that some of us in this room, not me of course, have issues with that. (laughs) You know, I think it it comes down to our hearts. Are we willing to re-surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ? The picture is that salt had that purpose, just as a disciple's purpose is to surrender and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. You can't become a disciple unless you understand what that means. Jesus won't let you. You might think you are, but you're not. So, again, Jesus is not into a makeover. He's into a takeover, a total takeover of your life. This means that we must totally surrender in all areas of our life to the lordship of Jesus or we cannot be his disciple. I I pray that that is a, 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 he who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the person who has never given their life to you and they are holding on to things right now and they're going to lose this war and i'm asking that your holy spirit would quicken and that today they would surrender all they have to you and it might be huge things god i ask that you would just give them the grace to surrender to you right now in their hearts they would cry out to you and say lord i give you it all And if something's popping in your mind and you go, I don't want to give that up, that's the thing that you need to give away to the Lord. You need to trust Him. He'll give you life if you give it up. Call out to Him. Receive His forgiveness this morning. His blood will forgive you and cover you of all your sin and you will be declared righteous, innocent before God. Your record will be totally expunged before Him. He forgets even what that was about. And then he makes you a son, but not unless you conditionally, totally, 100% surrender to the son, knowing that this is from now on. For those of you who have been following Christ and you've taken back the deed to your life, may you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Repent, remember, and redo. Lord God, we love you. and We want to love you in word and deed. Thank you for this beautiful day, Lord. Thank you for the fellowship we've had in your name and worshiping you with our songs and with our hearts. Now, Lord, have our actions. In the name of Jesus, amen.